Thank you, Megan. Thank you, kids and Lishi. That, that that was my whole sermon. They they took all my material. So, uh, but that's okay. Uh, welcome again, everyone. Uh, my name is Eric Henderson. I'm the senior associate pastor here at Bethany Green Lake. Uh, I'm so glad you're joining us from wherever you are. Uh, and if you haven't already, would love for you just to take a moment uh, and say hello in the chat. Uh, let folks know uh, where you are joining us, worshiping from uh, today. Uh, this is vital for us as a community because uh, now more than ever, church is where you are. And Bethany is where you are. And we believe that God is at work where you are. And wherever you are, you are not alone. Uh, we're continuing our series today uh, called Good Rain. Now it's rain as in the reign of a king. And we're bouncing around the teachings of Jesus uh, in the gospels where he's repeatedly spoke of a different kingdom, a kingdom with different values, a, a different economy, different power structures, and different ethics. And our text today that Pastor Megan read uh, is from Jesus' most famous sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in Matthew uh, chapters five through seven. And it's what some people call the purest representation of the Christian faith. It's a collection of teaching that one commentator has even called the manifesto of the king. Do you love that? That's an inspiring image to me. Now, if you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, it's their 70th uh, anniversary uh, this year. And, and I can just appear, uh, I can just imagine Aslan, right? This Christ figure appearing on the horizon, backlit by the sun. And you just know that the momentum of the battle is about to change. And I use the word battle because it feels in very real ways like the world is at war, war in, in every sense, physical war, spiritual war, a war for our spirits and souls and bodies. And many of us feel like a scripture says, like we're hard pressed on every side. It's leaving us weary and bruised and confused. COVID is this silent enemy. Racism is so ingrained in our systems and structures that some don't see it and many others fight it multiple times a day. And we're reeling from the continued economic fallout from lockdowns or, or, or tax policies. There's this ever widening gap between rich and poor from wildfires and, and hurricanes and other weather events, from Supreme Court battles here in the U.S., and of course, a national election just a few weeks away. All the while, many of us aren't even sure what we can believe in. There's these institutions like the FBI, the Postal Service, the, the CDC, our sources of, of information like the news, our leaders like the President or Congress, science, the Bible, our social media feeds, and many of us even doubt our own experience. That, that's what we've, we've seen with our eyes and touched and tasted. And it leaves us wondering, where am I? Who am I? What am I supposed to do? Do I fight? Do I run? Do I hide? Now, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount was called this because he was teaching on a hillside. This is my sermon from a mostly empty sanctuary. And as Jesus spoke, a crowd of maybe 200 were listening. And though the specifics of our battles are different, they too knew what it meant to have battles on every side. 
Jesus' listeners were Jewish just as Jesus was Jewish, and they were occupied by the Roman Empire, a a, a kingdom with a different set of values and ethics, which didn't sit well for a group of folks uh, who were supposed to be God's chosen people. Jesus' listeners were in a social and political mess. And as Richard walked through on week one of this series just a few weeks ago, there were several groups among them with different solutions. Let's remember those. The Zealots wanted violent revolution. The Herodians wanted to fit in and play the political game. The Essenes withdrew to the desert to form their own alternative society. And the Pharisees believed if they would just live pure lives, that God would send Messiah to come and deliver them. But the question on all their minds was what should we do about this social and political mess that we're in? And enter Jesus, who began to teach on the kingdom of God and a different way of life, contrasting the kingdoms of the world and the kingdom of heaven. And this is our thesis for today. It's found in your bulletin uh, that's there in the chat if you'd like it, if you'd like to follow along. But just like the first tears of Jesus' sermon on the mount, sitting there on a hillside, we too are immersed and surrounded by the ethics of a rival kingdom. So today we also sit and listen to the way of Jesus, this good reign that invites us to the transformational power of God's ethic. His ethic challenges the status quo around us. And two weeks before our national election, the party politics of our day, and invites us to a higher and better way of being in the world. We're going to look together at Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 13 to 16, as we read through three lenses. The first, identity. Who are we? The second, impact. Why does it matter? And three, invitation. What should we do? I want to encourage us today that regardless of the immediate outcome of these battles around us, that God's good reign, his kingdom, is both here and is coming. And we have a calling both individually and collectively to live into today and in the days to come. Join me in prayer. God, we thank you for meeting us uh, in all of these spaces where we are. We thank you for this uh, brutal though important reminder uh, that the church is where we are, that we have always existed outside of the four walls and we wanna continue to do that faithfully, Lord, to walk with you in this exiled time. Uh, Jesus, we pray as we gather, uh, even in amongst uh, distractions of, of all kinds, that you would reveal yourself to us today, that each of us is here for a reason, for a divine appointment with you, even in this moment. And as you reveal yourself, Lord, that we would respond, that we would become more like you, to live into our truest selves and to represent you well, in the world. Jesus, we need these moments together today. Uh, Come and speak. We love you. In your name, amen. So as we begin, let's consider this first lens, identity. Who are we? When I uh, was growing up, I would always go to a camp and you're like, oh no, here's another camp story from Eric. Uh, But it was about sixth or seventh grade and we were sitting in uh, this amphitheater during a camp chapel time. And maybe you've been in this kind of scenario before. Uh, And I, like I often was, was uh, talking uh, while the speaker was talking. 
Uh, still a problem of mine uh, to this day. Zoom muted calls have helped that uh, to some degree. But, but I was talking, and I'd like to think that I was referencing something that they were saying. Like I was in the space. I was locked in paying attention. But I'm talking to people around me. And the speaker, this guy, Zach, Zach Brown, for those of you listening up in Stanwood this morning, uh, all of a sudden I hear Henderson. Uh, and, and it's all quiet and I look forward and, and then I see his compassionate eyes. He looks at me, he says, stand up. And so I stand up in a crowd of about 60 other sixth or seventh graders, whatever I was at the time. Uh, and, and in the most genuine way, he's, he's not even mad on his face. He says, you are a leader. And then he says, people follow you. And then he says, sit down. So I sit down and listen to the rest of this message. And of course, I'm wrecked inside in part because uh, I've just inter- interrupted this uh, person that I love. And, and uh, so after it, it all ended, everybody kind of went back and, and he pulled me aside. Uh, and I had been thinking as he was speaking uh, that how true it was that I was a leader. Like the Lord gave me insight into my young life at that time of how many situations in my life where people were following me. And I had the thought, boy, people are following me. Who am I following? And so it, it may have been the first time, it may have been like the 70th time, uh, but right there after that, that service, I, I gave my life to the Lord because I understood the consequences, that people were following me. Who was I following? Uh, identity is this uh, incredible uh, thing for us to, to live out from. It's this incredible motivator for us. It's at the core of who we are. And, and there on the hillside, Jesus said to the crowd, you are the salt of the earth. He didn't say, I want you all to become salt. My life may have not changed in the same way that day had Zach said, Henderson, be a leader. Had I just experienced uh, this correction, instead I was called into my identity, just as these people on the hillside were. He didn't say, I want you all to become salt. No, he said, you are the salt of the earth. He declared an identity over them. So the question is, why salt? Now, there's much scholarship and and speculation around the meaning of salt in this passage. As we, as Lishi and and the kids share with us, salt is a preservative. And some would say that we're to preserve the word of God and represent God's goodness and truth in the world. Likewise, that, that salt is an antiseptic, that we bring healing to the world. And finally, that salt is a seasoning, that we bring flavor or spice to the world through acts of service and the way that we live. And now I'd suggest that when reading this passage devotionally, that is to open our hearts to the Lord and say, what meaning do you have for me today? That these are all good and true meanings behind the use of salt, behind the salt of the earth. But as we'll see in our next section, Jesus was drawing on the distinctness of salt and our role in the world and being set apart and different while still being very much in the world. As the kids experience, salt isn't very good on its own, but when used to flavor a food, uh, we love it. So Jesus says we 
are the salt of the earth. And he likewise says, we are the light of the world. Again, identity, not go become light, but you are light. It's perhaps easier to see why Jesus used light because the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation are filled with God's people as light in darkness, with God as light. And like a mustard seed or a bit of yeast, a little goes a long way. So this is our identity, salt and light, because Jesus has said so. And as we sit and listen to Jesus, wondering where to put our faith dollar, as Richard so often calls it, this is a good bet. And where we choose to put our faith, what kingdom we claim has far reaching implications. Because as Jesus was speaking, he said, you are the salt of the earth, the whole earth. And he said, you are the light of the world, the whole world. And you can almost imagine someone there that day uh, turning to their neighbor and saying like, this guy thinks big, doesn't he? Right? Indeed, our identity and calling to be salt and life has massive implications. Now, if you're short on time or you dozed off for a minute, I'm gonna give you the sermon in a sentence. The world can't taste and see if we're not the salt and the light. And this leads us to our second lens, that of impact. So we're salt and light. And why does it matter? Because the world can't taste and see if we're not. And Jesus makes this declaration and then it comes with a warning. The invitation from Jesus is as the apostle Paul in in Ephesians and Colossians put it is to walk in a manner worthy of that to which we've been called. You are salt, you are light. Jesus made this so. And here's what happens if you don't. Verse 13 says, but if the salt loses its saltiness, How can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. As I was studying for this message, I I read a lot of books because I always need a lot of people a whole lot smarter than me uh, to help me understand the word of God so that I can preach the word of God or God can preach it first to me and then I can share it uh, with you all. That's always how it goes. But I came across these scholars who pointed out that that salt was such a common thing in the ancient world that it was hard to pinpoint the specific context that Jesus was using it in, Uh, which is why most of the sermons you hear on the subject land on these general uses that I used above, uh, that we mentioned above. The most common being that, that, that salt is seasoning, flavor, or spice. It also stood for covenant. It stood Uh, It was a form of currency, which let's just say that it is this this common thing of of seasoning, flavor, or spice. Too often, Christians aren't spicy. We're bland. Too often, we're we're not bright. We're beige. Don't let your faith be beige. That's a sermon for somebody today. Are, Are you joyless? Are you bitter? Are you... Are you toxic? That's not salt, that's bleach. Are you tasteless? That's not salt, that's like sand. And speaking of sand, many scholars believe that Jesus was doing two specific things as he talked about salt. The first is that salt represented wisdom. 
And Jesus saying, salt that isn't salty is only good to walk on. Is Jesus saying it's like sand? And sand in the, in the scriptures is synonymous with shaky ground. It's not wise. And Jesus is saying, you are the wisdom of the earth. Remember Jesus teaching about the wise and foolish builders. What did the foolish builder build his house on? Sand. The house built on sand was blown and tossed by the wind and it crumbled. Now we live in a world blown and tossed by the wind. And Jesus is saying that we are the solid ground of the earth. The word of God is solid ground. Your prayer life is solid ground. Our worship and fellowship together is solid ground. Now, when I open uh, Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, boy, I'm blown and tossed. There's less solid ground there and everyone is vying for our attention. Believe this, buy that, conform, get on board. This doesn't mean we don't engage there. In fact, we're needed there more than ever. And we need to maintain our distinctness there. We need to bring wisdom there. We need to bring a uniquely Christian perspective there. And we find it in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Because when we become sand, we're only good for being walked on. We're bland food, not worth eating. It's just kind of existing. You can't build anything strong and lasting on sand. So that's the first thing for us today, that salt equals wisdom, and the world is in desperate need of it. We're in desperate need of it. The second specific thing that Jesus is doing as he talks about salt is he's critiquing a specific group of people called the Dead Sea community. These were a group who nicknamed themselves the Sons of Light, and yet no one could taste or see their light because they had withdrawn to caves near the Dead Sea. They were distinct, yes. They were set apart, yes. And in that sense, they were salty but it was no good because no one could get close enough to taste it. Jesus is calling us to a confident engagement in the world, not a fearful disengagement. The kingdom of God, his good reign is intimate. It's personal. It's tactile. Like salt, you can taste it. And like light, you can see it. And a little bit goes a long way. Jesus does a similar thing with light. In verses 14 and 15 of Matthew chapter five, it says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gets light to everyone in the house. The whole point of light is to be seen. And the Dead Sea community, ironically called the sons of light, weren't displaying light, but were hiding it. Now, Jesus was likely drawing on Isaiah 2 uh, two here. The book of Matthew is full of references to the book of Isaiah in particular. Listen to this from Isaiah 2. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. 
He will judge between the nations and settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So then in this Isaiah 2 sense, we as disciples are only a city on a hill if we invite and draw people of all nations. Remember, Jesus said the whole world. If we invite and draw them up the hill and through the gates of the city, and into an experience of shared community. The world can't taste and see if we are not salt and light. God's rescue mission in the, in the world, the, the whole ballgame for you and I as followers of Jesus is to display God's goodness to the world. I've titled this message, Taste and See, after Psalm 34, 8, where David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. And this leads to our third and final lens to consider this passage through today. Invitation. Just as the psalmist David is inviting us to taste and see that the Lord is good, this is what we're inviting the world around us to do. So, invitation. What should we do? Uh, To begin this section, I want to call our attention to two things. The first is that Jesus spoke of, of lighting a lamp. And, and this was the method of light in the first century. It was an oil lamp. It, it, it was simple and consistent as it, as it shined, as it burned. I wonder how Jesus might update this teaching for us today where we have different kinds of light. I wonder if Jesus might say, don't be a strobe light. Don't be loud and disorienting. Or don't, don't be a dimmer switch. Don't turn your light up and down. Rather, shine your light simply and consistently, lighting the way for others and illuminating the darkness. I've been a strobe light Christian before. My, my judgment has been loud and in the face of folks around me. And I, I've been a dimmer switch too, turning my light up and down to conform in a group. The ethic of the kingdom of God and the invitation for us is to live in agreement with our truest identity. That is Christ in us, the hope of glory, shining as a beacon of light and wisdom all the time. And the second thing I want to point out is this. As we shine, take a look at where the light uh, is seen first. Verse 15, a, a lamp is placed on a stand the scripture says it gets light to everyone in the house. Now, I don't know if Jesus was making this application, uh, but as we're all spending a lot of time in our homes these days, and many of the problems in the world result from the breakdown of, of families and of interpersonal relationships. Moms, dads, grandmas, grandpas, sons, daughters, roommates, shine your light at home. Shine your light at home. It is perhaps the the hardest place because we are seen and known most fully and most often there. But our homes are the places where hearts and minds are formed, where faith is strengthened or broken. Now, even as a pastor, my most important congregation are my wife and kids. And I fail them all the time. But they will tell you that I'm quick 
to say, I'm sorry, to ask for forgiveness, and then to try again. Where else are we gonna go? Perhaps you need to do the same thing today. Maybe it's not going well at home for you. Maybe as a way to prepare for that, you wanna connect with one of our prayer ministers uh, in the chat just after the service. So often we believe or want everyone else to believe that everything's just fine, that we're good. But I know for many of us, things are not fine. I'm a mess sometimes. Who's with me? Every hand in the room went up, by the way. Let's bring our mess to Jesus. Let's confess it to one another. A a, a source of light, no matter how big or how small, a, a candle or a bonfire, visible from miles away, but it first lights what is immediately around it. May we shine our light at home in the same way. There's another invitation. This passage of scripture is often taught as the salt and light passage. But there's there's an interesting case to be made that that Jesus actually gave a three-point sermon here. And, And why, I mean, where do you think we got the idea? Why wouldn't he have? Listen to verse 16. It says, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. Deeds. Jesus called out what we're to do uh, and, and why. Now, further evidence that this, this is a little bit of Bible trivia here. Further evidence that Jesus' sermon was, was three points. Is that 75 times in the book of Matthew, uh, Matthew Jesus uh, spoke in a triad, like ask, seek, knock, that famous passage, where he answered three questions, told three parables, or did three distinct things. Bible trivia, over. And here we have salt, light, and deeds. And Jesus wasn't preaching a works righteousness, but rather that righteousness works, that you are salt, you are light. And it's the natural result as we live into it that the world sees what we do and God is glorified. So what is it that we're to do? Scripture says, live as people of light. Listen to Ephesians 5, uh, 8 to 16 in the the New Living Translation. I like the way this is phrased. For once you were full of darkness, but now you are light from the Lord. So live as people of light. For this light produces in you only what is good and right and true. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness and instead expose them. Evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them. For the light makes everything visible. This is why it is said, awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Now, so much of our lives are spent uh, online these days, for, for better or worse. And I want to c- encourage us that our citizenship in heaven, being people from another kingdom, living into a different ethic, should influence our digital citizenship here on earth. Take a look back at your social media feeds. Do your words please the Lord? Are they true? Are they right? Are they lovely? Are they admirable? Or, or think back on your last 
phone conversation with family or friends. How about there? Or maybe that side text or conversation in the, in the private chat on Zoom during a work meeting. Jesus is inviting us to live as children of light. So we should do it everywhere. Let's stop being snarky, vindictive, whiny in our digital spaces in particular, and instead let our conversation be wise and gracious, seasoned with salt, as the scripture says. Because remember, salt equals wisdom. And Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And how do we fear the Lord? We turn to him. There's much brokenness in our world today, and we all want to fix it, but we first need to come to the Lord for wisdom. Otherwise, in our own strength and wisdom, we're likely to fail. If you missed it, just a few weeks ago, Richard preached an incredible sermon uh, on John 15 and our need to abide uh, before we do anything else. I'd encourage you, uh, as you discern how to be active in the world, uh, consider John 15 abiding and, and go back and listen to that grow sermon at the end of our Gather, Grow, Go series. So we as a community wanna practice this coming to the Lord very intentionally. And and as you heard in the video from pastors Richard and Abby earlier in the service, we've created a series of of prayer stations in the sanctuary called Sacred Space. And and hot off the press, there's another way to sign up. Uh, All the details on signing up safely can be found by texting the keyword. If you're a texter, I know we all are, Texting the keyword sacred to 64600. Sacred to 64600. For 14 days beginning tomorrow, we want to seek the Lord as a community. We want to invite you back to our sacred space, the sanctuary, in this simple way. And we so believe that God wants to meet us here in worship. Again, it comes from the book of Joel. We're going to be studying that together in a few weeks, but we want to prepare our hearts ahead of that Uh, and certainly intercede for the world and for our country in a time of intense division, fear, and hopelessness. So we're invited to deeds. We're invited uh, to wisdom. Lastly, we're invited to humility and suffering. And just before this salt, light, and deeds passage, Jesus said these words, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus' higher and better way is a lower and less comfortable way. The Beatitudes, as they were called at the beginning of Matthew 5, speak of the blessings of an upside down world being turned right side up. The way of the kingdom isn't through status, power, and comfort, but through humility and suffering and service. The symbol of our faith is a cross. It's an empty cross, but it still requires death. The road to transformation, to new life, runs through suffering. 1 Corinthians 1.18, one of my favorite passages says, for the message of the cross is foolishness, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. If the gospel and the message of the cross is starting to feel in your own heart 
like foolishness, cling to Jesus. That's a warning sign. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. God is at work in the world through you and I, through his church, and he's inviting us to a different ethic that challenges the the power structures and the scoreboard of the world around us. Our thesis said this passage challenges our politics, and indeed it does. Now, hopefully we'll all vote in a few weeks' time. I voted yesterday. I was going to wear my little sticker, but I forgot it. But we must understand, by the way, there's someone standing at the little drop box with stickers. Because I've always been like, oh, mail-in voting, that's hard because I won't get the little sticker. I've actually never got a sticker. Yesterday, there was a nice lady there handing out stickers. Praise the Lord. Thanks for that lady. Hopefully, we'll all vote in a few weeks' time. We must understand as the people of God that our ultimate hope does not rest in election results. But at the same time, Many people's lives and the quality of their lives in the here and now do depend on the policies that our governments enact. And followers of Jesus must stand with the vulnerable around us in keeping with God's word and Jesus' preference for the powerless, the poor, and the broken, which is all of us, by the way. We must humble ourselves and take this seriously. Get to know the folks around us who are different than us. Do you have strong opinions and and feelings on a particular issue? Are those opinions and feelings informed by those personally affected, those with direct knowledge of the lived experience? This is important information for us. Immigration, racism, abortion, divorce, what it's like to to own a small business or have a pre-existing condition or live paycheck to paycheck, what it's like to be gay. Name an issue, and there are people experiencing it very personally. And as we discern how it is that we should live in the world, how we should vote, what we believe in, we should consider the lived experience of these folks around us. Because we're the sons of light that Jesus was rebuking if we aren't actually proximate to and learning from the people that God has placed around us. We must humble ourselves, be curious, Walk alongside others. And this does not mean that we'll agree in the end all the time. In fact, following Jesus will mean we have some unpopular views, in part because each of us are trying to be faithful to the biblical witness, the whole testimony of God. And in that biblical witness, we see Jesus eating with, touching, healing, standing with all sorts of people that the world casts aside. Jesus is radically inclusive, and that is uncomfortable to me. And I imagine it's uncomfortable for some of you. And that's something for us to discern and reckon with in the days ahead. But make no mistake, the kingdom of God is a relational kingdom. We're together. We are a new covenant community that confounds the wisdom of the world. And more and more, we must understand that we don't fit neatly into political boxes and systems of the world. And this is part of why Jesus was encouraging his disciples on the hillside. He says, look, persecution and trouble will come. It did for me and the prophets, but stand firm. And each of us must be careful that we're standing firm on God's wisdom, salt, not sand, living into the ethics of Jesus and his kingdom. 
We, we also must be careful then as we engage politically not to believe that America is the city on the hill and the church is its guardian. Rather, the people of God shine as the light of God as a city on a hill, inviting all to come and share in its light. It's a different kingdom. There is much then for us to discern as we live in the world and engage in elections and social policy discussions and advocacy. And even in the ways we steward our own gifts and resources, but let us not lose our saltiness, our distinctiveness by following the crowd and the latest trends or resting our hopes on fading kingdoms. And let us not hide our light by withdrawing from the world. Instead, let us clothe ourselves with Christ and love and serve the world around us without reservation. May we be, as G.K. Chesterton said, I love this, completely fearless, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. And may we all taste and see that the Lord is good, finding our refuge in him. And how will we know if we're doing this right? One author puts it this way, and I'll close with this as the band comes. When the kingdom is manifested, it's rather obvious. It, it doesn't look like a church building. It doesn't necessarily look like a group of religious people professing certain things, including the profession that they are Christian. It doesn't necessarily look like a gathering of people advocating the right political or ethical causes. It doesn't look like a group who are, or at least who believe themselves to be, morally superior to others, telling them how they should live. It doesn't look like a group using swords, however righteous they believe their sword wielding to be. It rather looks like people individually and collectively mimicking God. It looks like Calvary, the cross of Christ. It looks Christian, whether it identifies itself as such or not. When people are coming under others to love and serve them without regard for how much or how little those others deserve it, and without regard for their own interests and reputation, the kingdom of God has come. May it be so. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you uh, for meeting us here. We thank you uh, that you have gone before us. Indeed, you have suffered. Isaiah describes you as the suffering servant who bore our, our, our sins. Uh, and Hebrews invites us to fix our eyes on you who have suffered. And so today, God, whatever uh, place we find ourselves in, maybe we're thriving, maybe we're in a, a season of, of doubt or torment or suffering, whatever it is, Jesus, be near to us. But we wanna look to you, uh, Jesus, in a world blown and tossed where, where so much salt is turning to sand, we don't wanna lose the reference point. You are pure light. You are holy, you are good. And so we follow you today. Uh, and in these moments, God, I pray that as we respond, that you would uh, just keep revealing yourself to us. Uh, Lord, we love you in your name. Amen. Let's continue to worship together.